Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, Aaron and Tracy and the rest of the choir and musicians. They obviously slept better than I did last night because they brought a lot of energy this morning to begin our worship. And uh, we'll see if we can continue that. We are in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 3, and we'll be reading quite a number of verses in just a few moments. That the world, our nation, and our own lives individually are filled with problems is beyond debate or question. In fact, the issue might be trying to pare down the number of problems we could come up with or at least try to decide which one is a greater priority and needs to be dealt with. Worldwide, there is a growing list of natural disasters, terrorist activity, the pandemic, of course, hunger and poverty, and the list could go on and on. And for most of those, there are there is little, if anything, we can do personally to try to overcome that other than to pray and hope that the government leaders around the world would do the right thing. To those world problems, we could add our, the problems of our nation. We could take those and include those in our nation and add to that such things as racism, immigration, violence, division, sexual crimes, and again, sadly, the list could go on and on. And then we could talk about our individual problems, marriage difficulties, career struggles, maybe other relational issues. And so far, I doubt that I've said anything that you would not agree with. You know that there are all these kinds of problems. The only thing you might question is some things that I've left off the list because there are many more that we could consider. But there is one problem, indeed, I'm going to make the case this morning that it is a, a greater problem than any that I've mentioned before. But there is one problem that we have a hard time oftentimes acknowledging. We will readily acknowledge all of those issues that I just brought up, and yet the problem that we are going to deal with this morning is often rationalized away, justified away, or simply not believed at all. Now, since we are in a church on a Sunday morning and I am a pastor, you probably know by now that I am talking about the problem of sin. It is a general problem, meaning that it impacts all the other things that we've already looked at, which is one of the reasons I'm saying this is a greater problem, because at the core, everything else I talked about comes back to this issue. But it's also the greatest problem because it has not just temporal, that is time consequences, but it has eternal consequences for all of us. So why then are we willing to recognize all of those other problems in the world and in our nation and in our lives, and yet sin has become more and more of a taboo topic? I want to talk to you this morning about the question, here's my title, Does Man Sin? That title, I am confident, will not attract a lot of online viewers. 
That is, if we have people this week who are going over our list of sermons online and they are trying to decide which one they are going to watch, I dare say this one will not make the top of the list. This is true because people outside of the church either don't believe in the problem of sin or simply don't want to hear about it. God is a God of love, they say, and to the exclusion of everything else. So God loves us, and as a result, God's not overly concerned with our sin or the judgment thereof. But as I've said to you before, my primary audience is not the world. My primary audience is you who are sitting here this morning listening. But even in that context, sin has been relegated to a distant doctrine, something perhaps that our ancestors talked a little too much about, and as a result, we've swung the pendulum to the other end of the spectrum, and we don't want to talk about it enough. We want to come to church on a Sunday morning and be encouraged and uplifted. We want to feel better than we felt when we came in. And if that's not going to happen, then why are we really here at all? If I just want to feel worse about myself, I can stay at home and watch the news or peruse social media. You might also be thinking, I thought this was a series on the tier one doctrines, those doctrines of our faith that must be believed in order to be what we call orthodox Christians. Shouldn't we then be talking about God? Shouldn't our focus be on who God is and what he has accomplished? And to that, I will answer yes. That is going to be the majority of our focus. In fact, we started there last week with the question, has God spoken or has God said? And we looked at the authority of his word. And we said that is foundational to all the other things. And likewise, what we are talking about this morning is foundational to much of what we're going to talk about moving forward. In other words, if man has not sinned, if man has no sin problem, then there is no need for the virgin birth. There is no need for exclusive salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no need for the resurrection of Jesus, and on and on we go. So the doctrines that we're going to be talking about moving forward about God are contingent upon our understanding that man has sinned, and as a result, we are separated from God and need a salvation that only God can provide. So this is a logical conclusion once again. If God has spoken, as we said he did last week in his word, then what does the Word of God say about our problem? And the Word of God says very clearly and compellingly that man has indeed sinned, and the sin problem in all likelihood is far worse than most of us really think it is. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they have used their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I want to begin this morning by talking about the inclusiveness of sin. And by that I simply mean who has this problem? Who is it that is under the curse of sin? If it is indeed a problem that I'm saying it is this morning, then who is impacted by this problem? And the verses that we have just read make it abundantly clear that the problem belongs to all of us. We've sort of jumped into the end of the first portion of the argument in Romans. For the first three chapters, Paul is making the case that all have sinned. You see, the Jews had no problem understanding that Gentiles were sinners. They had a real problem with understanding that they themselves were sinners. Because they were God's chosen people. They were the covenant people of God. Yes, the Gentiles were sinners, but not them, they thought. And as a result, they did not believe they were in any danger of God's judgment because of their sin. But Paul comes to the conclusion that all are sinners, without exception. There is only one who has lived a sinless life, and that is Jesus Christ. And as a result, all others are in an equal predicament under the wrath of God. Yes, some people do sin more than others. Yes, there are greater consequences here in this life between one sin and another. But the simple conclusion remains, all are sinners without exception. Now, if we're going to speak of this problem, we certainly need to define our terms. If the authoritative Word of God says that all are sinners, we need to understand exactly what sin is. The biblical term literally means missing the mark. Those of you who like to shoot guns or those of you who have a carry permit, you know that when you go to get that carry permit, they put a target in front of you after you've passed the written test, and you have to hit that target a certain percentage of the time. That target is out there, and your job is to fire your gun and hit the target. And only when you hit it a certain percentage of the time will they give you that carry permit. They want to make sure that you know how to aim and how to fire your gun before they give you permission to carry it around. And so you've got to hit the target. So God, likewise, has established a target. There is something at which we are to aim with our lives. That target has been established by God, and that target is perfection. Because that is who God is. God is perfectly holy, therefore the target for our lives is also to be perfectly holy. As a result, none of us can hit that target. None of us are perfect, which means all have missed the mark, all have sinned. And I'm not talking about hitting the target once in your life or even occasionally. I'm talking about the need to hit the target every day, every moment, in every thought and every action. And clearly none of us can come remotely close to that. 
So we've missed the mark. We've sinned. Theologians often talk about two broad categories of sins. Sins of commission and sins of omission. You can hear in the words there, the word commission has as its root commit. And so that's talking about sins that we do, things we think that we ought not to think or do that we ought not to do. Sins of omission, again, you hear the root word there is the word omit. So these are things that we ought to do, but we do not do. Good things that we are called upon according to God's word to do, and yet we fail to do them. And the point is that we constantly miss the mark in both sins of commission and sins of omission. So we must start with the basic truth that runs throughout this passage and throughout Scripture that all are indeed sinners. There is inclusive language here. All are under sin. None is righteous, not even one. And in that clear statement, look again at verse 23. It sums it up very clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I am not the exception and neither are you. The inclusiveness of sin means that all have indeed sinned. Okay, if that is our problem, then perhaps what we need to do is determine where we went off course. Where and when did we miss the target? Because sometimes in life, when you figure out where you went off track and you go back there, you can get yourself back on the right track. Where was it that you diverted from right? Go back there and get back on track. And so I want to talk secondly about the initiation of sin. In other words, when did it begin in our lives? There are several options here to consider. Some of you might say, well, sin began in my life when I committed my first really big sin. Whatever those big sins are in your mind, when I first committed that really big one and understood what I was doing, that's where sin began. But as I think I've already alluded to, and we'll talk more about, though there are greater consequences for one sin or another, all are sin. Other people might say, well, maybe it began at what we sometimes call the age of accountability. That is this subjective age, and it may be different for different people, but this subjective age, when we came to the point where we understood what sin was, that's when sin was initiated in our lives, whether we're aware of it at the time or not. There are broader issues to think about when it comes to the age of accountability, but it goes beyond the scope of this sermon. But as always, we must ask, okay, what does the Bible say about when did sin initiate in our life? Which again is why we looked at that last week as the foundational element for everything else. So what does the Bible say about when sin initiated? And the Bible says it began at birth, or really in some sense long before that. I know people don't like that idea. People don't like the idea that we are born in sin as evidenced by the way we treat newborn babies. We say of those newborn babies, oh, look how sweet and innocent they are. But they're not innocent. We know that very shortly after birth because they cry to get what they want. They demand that you do what they want done. They very early on learn how to pick pitch a tantrum in order to make you get, get them what they need. 
you don't have to teach them how to lie or share or not to share, I should say. Those come naturally. You have to teach them to tell the truth and how to share. So whether we like it or not, I can agree with you that they are sweet, but they are certainly not innocent. Listen to what the Bible says from the words of King David in one of the Psalms. And this is in particular a psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. He cries out in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now let me explain that just a bit, because there are several ways we could misunderstand that. David was not accusing his mother of having a sinful relationship that resulted in his birth. That's not what he means. David was not sitting on the counselor's couch blaming everything on his upbringing and what his mother did or did not do for him during that time. David is taking full responsibility for his sin. If you read the rest of the psalm, he is not saying it is somebody else's fault. He is taking full responsibility for it. But what he is acknowledging is that the depths of sin, that this was not a one-time lapse in judgment, that this was not a one-time action on his part that was counter to who he was. He is acknowledging that sin runs deep in his life. A few psalms later, he writes, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And you say, yeah, but that says the wicked, and I'm not the wicked. There are people who are in that category, but not me. Well, do we need to go back to point number one? Because point number one was the inclusiveness of sin, that all have sinned. David is not categorizing a certain seriousness of sin here, saying that some wicked people go astray from the womb. No, he's saying this is where it all begins. This is where our sin nature comes from. And this is why we sin. Let me make just one more reference, one that comes just a few verses before what we read together earlier in our service. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The Bible is very clear that we all inherit a sin nature because Adam sinned and plunged humanity into this predicament, at which point you cry, but that's not fair. It is not fair that I have a sin nature because Adam and Eve made a bad decision. Well, if that is your take on it, then I have no hope to offer you. Because if that's not fair, the other half of the equation isn't fair either. And the other half of the equation says that through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. And I will acknowledge that is not fair. It is not fair that I'm counted righteous before God because of what Christ did for me, but that is the gospel truth. And likewise, whether you think it's fair or not, we are born with a sin nature, which means the problem just might be a whole lot worse than you once thought. Which leads me to my third point, the infection of sin. I use that word intentionally because we are all infectious disease experts now, right? Over the past two years, we have all come to grand conclusions about what has caused the virus, what's the best way to get rid of the virus. We are all experts in this field. So let's think about a spiritual virus. Perhaps thinking about the physical virus that we've been dealing with will help us understand the infectious nature of sin. 
And the question here really is, how serious is this issue? Now, again, we know that with COVID, there are degrees of severity. It goes all the way from someone who does not even know they have the virus because they have no symptoms to obviously those who have died as a result of the virus and everything in between. And likewise, there are variations when it comes to people's opinion concerning the severity of sin. Just how much does this infect you and I and everyone else? Well, some would say there is no infectious problem at all. In fact, part of the problem is that you keep talking about sin. Sin is not really all that big a deal at all. It's not mankind's problem. And if you'd just quit talking about it, we could move on. I was in a meeting with other pastors this week. And just in conversation, one of them said uh, something about a, a poster that was in his daughter's classroom. Now, I don't know what grade she was in. I think it's middle school. I'm not sure. But he referenced this poster that was in her classroom. It simply said, you are enough. He said, I don't know enough of what, but you are enough. And that's just another example of the self-esteem culture in which we live. You don't need anything. You are enough just like you are. Therefore, love yourself for who you are. You don't really have all of these problems because you are good just the way you are. Then, of course, there are some who would acknowledge that sin is a problem for most people, but not a major problem. Again, yes, there are some who are evil to the core. There are names in history that we could recount who are wicked. But by and large, most of us are good and decent. Sin in the minds like this is nothing more than a speeding ticket that we get now and again. Sure, it's breaking the law, but it's really not that big a deal. I mean, I've been pulled over probably half a dozen times through the years. Nothing real recently, gratefully. And in all those times I've been pulled over, I've managed just to get one ticket. And ironically, it's the ticket I didn't think I deserved. The other five, I deserved. I mean, one time I was a youth pastor and I was with my pastor driving somewhere and I was pulled over. And the police officer was standing at my driver's window with his ticket book out when he got a call on the radio. And he said to me, it's your lucky day. I've got to go. And he left. On another occasion, and I was very young at this point, this is not the smart move, but on another occasion, I was traveling at a higher rate of speed than I should have been, and a state trooper passed me, and I saw his brake lights come on, which I knew meant he was about to turn around and come after me. So I did what you ought not to do, and that is I turned off of that road. He still caught me. And the first question he asked me when he came to my window was, son, why'd you turn off of that road back there? And I said, I think you and I both know the answer to that question. And he said, did you know that's a felony in this state? I said, I know it now. And I still only got a warning, didn't even give me a ticket. My point is that that's the way most of us think, or many people think about sin. Yes, it's against the law of God, but it's a minor offense at best. Something that we sort of just pay the fine and move on and don't really worry all that much about it. And then, of course, there is the mentality that I'm trying to get us to this morning, and that is the invasive and infectious nature of sin, that it is a major problem. In fact, to call it a major problem is not even strong enough. It is a deadly problem. 
the Roman Catholic Church has a category called the seven deadly sins, outlining what they believe to be the most serious of sins. And you say, well, I sort of like that idea. I mean, that categorizes it for me. Well, having said that, I do want to let you know that gluttony is one of those seven sins. So you may not like those seven categories if you go back and look at them. But my point is we don't have seven deadly sins. The Bible makes it very clear that all sins are deadly. James writes, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Or again, if I might appeal to Paul in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, which means all sin is deadly. Now suppose we go as a group together to the beach this next summer and we decide we're gonna have a contest. We're gonna see who can jump across the ocean. You say, well, no, that's silly. Nobody can do that. It's no less silly than you thinking you can hit the target and live your life perfectly sinless. So humor me. We go to the beach next summer and we decide we're gonna have a contest about who can jump across the ocean. Now, obviously, I'm rather athletic and in good shape. So chances are pretty good I'm gonna be able to beat most of you. Let's say then that I'm able to jump 20 feet, well short of the 29.4 that is the long jump record, but 20 feet nevertheless. Most of you maybe can do 15 feet. Some of you, five to 10 feet. Now you say, well, compared to one another, there's not a whole lot of difference. I mean, 20 versus 15. But we all fell miserably short. None of us came anywhere close to jumping across the ocean, of course. And that is my point with this sin problem. That we tend to think, well, I'm better than most. I I'm trying my hardest and I'm not as bad as a lot of people. That might be true. But compared to the standard, the holiness of God, we're all deeply infected with sin. My next point might be a little bit confusing, especially with the way I'm wording this, but I want us to consider now the inspiration of sin. It's confusing because inspiration is normally a good word. You know, what, what, what inspires you? But at its core, the word inspiration simply means what motivates or stimulates us to do something. And so my question here is, why do we struggle with sin so much? What is it that is motivating us or inspiring us to sin? Well, in some sense, we've already talked about it, and that is we have a sin nature. We sin because we have a sin nature, and that is entirely true. But I want to consider something else this morning. The inspiration for our sin is our own desire. In short, we sin because we want to. If I were to take you back to the garden and ask you about that first sin, many of you would readily remember that Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. She went and picked fruit from the tree that God said you cannot eat thereof. She ate and she gave it to Adam and he ate as well. And obviously that is all correct. That is exactly what happened. They ate in direct opposition to what God had said. But the question I'm considering is why? Why did they do that knowing that God had spoken and God had said very clearly, do not eat of this particular tree? And Genesis records the reason. It said of Eve that the tree was a delight to her eyes. She saw that it was good and it would give her wisdom. 
And therefore, she desired the very thing that God told her she could not have. In fact, you can make a case that she desired it more than she desired to obey God. And therefore, she did what she desired rather than being obedient to God, which still remains the very essence of sin. We do what we want. We do what we love to do. And ultimately, our love of our own desires often rule out over our love for God. And that sounds rather harsh, but only because perhaps you've never thought of it in those terms. The Bible acknowledges that sin is pleasurable for a season. It is pleasing to our eyes. It is desirous for our flesh. Otherwise, we would never give in to the temptation. I've told you before that I'm pretty much close to being blind. I can't see the big E on the chart without my glasses or my contacts. I am drastically short or nearsighted. And spiritually speaking, many of us are short-sighted. That is, we only look at the present pleasure. We see something, we desire it, we don't think about the long-term consequences or the results. We simply think about what it is going to bring us in the moment, and therefore we give in. And so the next time you are tempted and you are tempted to conclude, well, the devil made me do it, perhaps you need to take some of the responsibility. Perhaps you need to take all of the responsibility and say, no, I did what I wanted to do. I disobeyed God because my own desires were more important in the moment than my desire for obedience with God. Well, I certainly just can't leave you there. I think I have made the case that man does sin. Mankind does sin. That's a biblical and practical answer. I mean, we know that. Deep down, we know that's what the Bible says, and deep down, we know we struggle with it. In fact, the deadly nature of the problem is why we have a Savior. You see, if sin is a minor problem, then I could just stand up here and say, why don't you try harder? Why don't you do better this week? If sin is just a matter of us doing better because we're, we're not living up to our own expectations, then we need, to, we need to check our wills and do better. But that's not the nature of sin. The nature of sin is that it is our nature. And as a result, it's a deadly problem, and the depths of our sin cries out for a glorious Savior. And that is why I want to conclude this morning by talking about the idea of our need to increase in victory. Ultimately, that means that we must, by faith, trust in Christ. That is the remedy and the only remedy for sin. So if we take everything we've been talking about this morning and we look ahead just a few moments because I don't want to leave you here and say, well, come back in a few weeks and you'll hear the remedy. So I need to give you the remedy. And that remedy is that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death and rose victoriously, paying the penalty for your sins and mine so that when we by faith trust in him, he showers his grace upon us, forgiving us of our sins and giving us, as I alluded to earlier, earlier his righteousness rather than the righteousness that we could not have and we have his righteousness instead of our sin he pays the penalty that we rightly deserved taking our place in death so that we might receive life and God offers this to us as a free gift of grace so my question is have you received this gift have you repented of your sins and by faith trusted in Christ, turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. 
The Bible says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You, like many of us have already done, can receive forgiveness or all of your sins, no matter the number and no matter the degree, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you, of course, have already done that in years past, and yet we still struggle with sin, don't we? And of course, we always will. But as we grow in our walk with Christ, we ought to be experiencing an increase in victory. That is, as we mature, we ought to be growing in that area of our lives. So how do we increase in victory once we are a Christian? Well, I could talk about knowing what tempts you and seriously avoiding it. I could talk about taking sin seriously and remind you that Jesus said radical surgery was necessary. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And of course, he's, he's not talking there literally. I could talk about our need for accountability partners and fellowship in the church and so much more. All of these are indeed part of the solution and they are all good things. I just don't have the time to dive into them this morning. So I'm simply going to give you the best piece of advice when it comes to seeing an increase in your victory over sin. The greatest pathway to victory over sin is to love God and treasure Christ above all else. The more we love and treasure the things of God, the less appeal there is for sin. When I speak to young couples in premarital counseling, they're always in love, of course. That's why they're getting married. And so even in that early stage, I talk to them about some temptations that might come down the road and they have their eyes are glazed over because they think it'll never happen to them. But I, but I tell them, one of the best ways, the best way to make sure that you are never tempted to be with someone else or to commit adultery is to make sure you remain in love with your spouse because the more we love our spouse, the less those other things and other people are appealing. And I'm saying the same thing about our relationship with God this morning. The more we love God and treasure Christ above all things, the less appealing sin becomes. Now, I realize that you may not like hearing all this bad news this morning, you may not like talking about sin. And yet, it is necessary because, as I've said, the problem is far serious than most people realize. If you were to go to the doctor this week complaining of recurring headaches, and the doctor said to you, it's no big deal, just take some aspirin and go home. And then a few months later, when it's too late, you discover that you had a brain tumor and you're going to die. That's malpractice, right? I mean, the doctor did not take the time to investigate, to do scans and tests to figure out what was causing your headaches. He or she just brushed it off and said, take an aspirin. You might not like to have heard that you had a brain tumor, but you needed to hear that so that you could chart a course for healing. Likewise, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we might not like to hear about how serious sin is, but we need to hear it because we will never be saved until we do. And once we are saved, we will never treasure Christ for the glorious Savior that he is until we see how serious our sin problem was and is. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a great Savior. You, through Christ, did not leave us in our sin. Even though we were separated from you, you did not leave us there. But you sent your son, Jesus, 
born of a virgin, died a a vicarious, substitutionary death and rose victoriously to satisfy your wrath against our sin, to pay the penalty that we rightly deserved. And as we've already sung this morning, your blood still flows. The cleansing power, the forgiveness that is found in the blood of Christ is still available. So I pray for someone here this morning who's never by faith trusted in you. Maybe they didn't understand their sin problem. Maybe they didn't believe it was all that serious, but this morning your Holy Spirit has convicted them that indeed their sin is a serious issue before a holy God. And only the Savior can satisfy that problem. For many of us, Lord, it's just a reminder today of how gracious you've been in salvation. And I pray then that we would come to love you more and treasure Christ above all so that sin is increasingly less appealing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.